From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. Francis is out today. I'm your host, Marjorie Sensor. The U.S. will come up with alternative payment options for foreign arms customers during the pandemic. Outgoing head of the Defense Security Cooperation Agency, Lieutenant General Charles Hooper, says foreign countries can use U.S. bank loans and modified payment schedules to pay for weapons over time. Defense News reports Hooper has not specified which nations have contacted his agency. More on this later in the program. DOD's Acting Chief of Cost Assessment and Program Evaluation, John Whitley, says the Navy's 30-year shipbuilding plan didn't offer a, quote, credible pathway to 355 ships. The Defense Department did not send the plan to Congress and is instead working on a new one. Inside Defense reports, Whitley expects that plan to be complete this fall. The Air Force's proposals for space acquisition haven't made it to Capitol Hill. And Air Force Deputy Assistant Secretary for Space Acquisition, Sean Barnes, says the report is held up at the Office of Management and Budget, but that it's almost ready. Federal News Network reports the proposals include creating a top-line budget for the Space Force and establishing a space-specific major acquisition process. The coronavirus has caused a few supply chain disruptions for defense contractors, but the head of Air Force acquisition, Will Roper, says the relationship between primes and the Pentagon has improved. This year's National Defense Authorization Act doesn't have major acquisition reforms included for the first time in a long time. Katrina McFarland's director at Science Applications International Corporation, SAIC, and former Assistant Secretary of Defense for Acquisition. Katrina, welcome back. It's good to see you. This is the first time in a number of years there's not anything in there. Is that a good thing or a bad thing, do you think? Well, it could be a good thing. I think we all suffer a little bit from uh, acquisition reform fatigue. Um, and perhaps it'll give an opportunity also for people to actually continue the work on the previous reforms to measure their success or their implications for long-term opportunities, either to change or to improve or to seek results. What are the most important reforms over the last maybe three to five years that you would like to see results from to see if they're trending the right ways? A lot of the changes that were giving uh, services more authority, um, passing back to the service chiefs and the uh, secretaries the authorities to initiate uh, acquisition programs like middle tier and some of the reforms that had to do with how do you use other transaction authorities and uh, a whole bunch of innovative tools that were outlined over the last couple of years. I'd love to see how they're doing and what their implications have been and what they could provide for the future. What are the right measures to look at regarding the devolution of uh, acquisition oversight to the service chiefs, Katrina? Well, it's interesting because if you note in the NDAA, they talk a lot about data collection and actually measuring these things. I'm not certain we have all the data yet, nor do we really know how to collect the data appropriately and formulate it in a way that'll give us an understanding clearly. But the most prevalent and the most obvious uh, measure of success is the product itself. If it comes out and it's what we need and everyone feels like it's providing the warfighter that capability, then we've had a success. Now, there's a whole bunch of other attributes that we should monitor the costs of programs, the timeliness of programs, and that's another interesting thing that the NDAA spells out. Uh, quite a bit of interest in saying, what are we going to do for 
measuring the oversight? Do we have data in place? Uh, can we see that the programs are performing well? Do we have the right people? Are we being uh, equal in our cutbacks of people over service contracts? Quite a bit. And then there are some also people changes, which indicates they're very interested to see if they have the right uh, organizational structure for these changes. The major organizational structure in the NDAAs this year is eliminating the office of the chief management officer. But again, no major structural reforms suggested either at the service level or the OSD level, specifically when it comes to acquisition. What's your sense of the best way to tell whether the split of the ATL job was uh, achieved the goal that Congress wanted, especially in light of the fact that it's just three or four years ago, split up CM or, or created the CMO office, and now they're already saying we didn't really get what we wanted there. Well, I don't know what they're looking for. I think they're trying to seek a way of determining how to in, engage in having enabling and emerging technologies uh, husband through the process. I think that's a noble issue, and I think as I read the NDAA when it was released, they really had structured along the lines of fostering the development of the science and technology into transition. Um, so I would assume that a logical thing would be how many programs transition and how successful are they are getting to fielding. And if that's the mechanism that would show that R&E and AS are performing well, then that would be what we would want to seek. Did they transition? Are those the places too, those areas that you're mentioning, the places to try to drive change in the timeliness of programs that you mentioned earlier? I believe so. I think that there's a lot of uh, goodness not in relitigating service acquisition activities. I think when they have problems, facilitating and helping them to overcome them is an OSD. And certainly when it has to do with a joint capability, an OSD is formulated so that you could have oversight over those that crosswalk or capabilities that are needed that have edges between services. But simply just mm, burdening the service with having additional oversight over what they're doing, uh, we put good people in good places. That's not helpful. So certainly that is reducing, I believe, uh, timeliness problems. Um, Bruce Jetty, the current ASALT at the Army, was on the program uh, on our, in our uh, uh, virtual conference a couple of weeks ago, NATSEC 2020 Coronavirus and Beyond, and talked about the way that the Army is digging into the defense industrial base to try to, to understand better what it needs. Um, we saw a lot of cash flow uh, coming from the department. Alan Schaefer, Ellen Lord's deputy, talking about that as well on that conference. Do you think that will stick after the virus is gone, that there will be more engagement both at the service level and the OSD level with the defense industrial base two, three levels underneath the primes, Katrina? I do, and I'll tell you why. I think that, first of all, let's knock on wood about COVID going away, but what did it teach us? It taught us that we do not have a grasp on the vulnerability and, frankly, the criticality of our supply chain. And our supply chain has revealed with this pandemic where we have weaknesses on over-reliance on a global system. So where is that balance between a, a global system and that which is organic? And I think definitely we're going to take a look, and you can see it in the NDA language, that they're very interested in the supply chain, understanding it, making sure we're protecting it. And that will be a challenge because, as we all know, uh, regardless of what administration uh, we're going to have in a couple months, uh, we're going to have a bill. And bills are going to be distributed, and that means cutbacks and efficiencies are going to be looked for. 
then that means we have to understand our supply chain so we can provide for those capabilities for our warfighters. And that is going to require investment. Katrina McFarland, always great to have you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Frank, and have a good one. Up next, what coronavirus means for defense contractors. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the Pentagon guidance contractors should track going forward. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Fourth quarter of the fiscal year is usually the busiest period for government buying, but it will likely look different this year. Since March, the Pentagon has issued dozens of memos to contractors as, it, as its acquisition workforce adapts to coronavirus restrictions. Dan Snyder is Director of Government Contracting Analysis at Bloomberg Government. Thanks for being here, Dan. What, what have we seen in terms of the guidance DOD has been issuing to contractors? Good morning, Marjorie. Um, so there's certainly been a steady flow of information that has been released by the Pentagon. Uh, beginning in March, which is when Bloomberg government began tracking this information. Um, and if we uh, examine the evolution of how that information has been uh, released, I think when we began in March, the, the beginning portion uh, was around existing procurement uh, regulation instruments and what we could do to mitigate damage uh, with contract uh, management remedies. So. Uh, that was mostly on schedule and payment adjustments, and that is evidenced by some of the guidance that we saw uh, on March 30th with managing uh, defense contracts. Uh, and that current uh, regulation was focused on excusing any delays. Um, in addition to that, uh, we had a class deviation for payment progress, um, and we saw the, the outcome of that in some information that was released uh, by Ellen Lord in May. Uh, which allowed some of the top uh, four of the five largest defense contractors um, receive much of that progress payment. Lockheed Martin alone uh, got 1.1 billion of the three billion that they have uh, been able to disperse to their suppliers. If we fast forward to uh, some of the uh, activity that we saw in April and May, it shifted to a new framework where we were trying to focus on uh, maintaining contractor readiness. And that's when uh, the biggest piece of, of guidance for contractors was issued in the form of the, the, the CARES Act Section 3610. And uh, the really significant part of that uh, was that it allowed agencies to reimburse any paid leave a contractor provides for keeping contractors in what's known as a ready state. So uh, that allowed contractors to continue to get paid throughout uh, the course of that contract that may or may not be being performed. Uh, and then the, the final note I'll make is in June and July. Um, at that stage, uh, we, we seem to be coming up for air and most of the guidance is around uh, how we can uh, get contractors back to work. We're looking at some of the existing um, uh, remedies that could be in place. Uh, for reimbursing contractors in areas like PPE uh, and how we can deploy contractors to areas such as the Middle East. How is the guidance um, put out by DOD compared to that put out by other agencies, put out by OMB? That's a great question. So OMB uh, and, and the White House have really been focused on agency instructions, so what they can do uh, to effectively maintain operations. 
comparatively, GSA has taken the lead on instructions for contractors, and they released a series of frequently asked questions, I think about 76 or so, uh, frequently asked questions that answered questions about contractor performance, payment, uh, as well as uh, any restrictions uh, that are taking place right now. So uh, for the government, OMB is really the one-stop shop. For contractors doing business with federal agencies, the Pentagon and GSA, uh, based off our review, have really been uh, the, at the forefront of providing those instructions to contractors. And and now, what, what are we watching in the fourth quarter? Obviously, this is typically a very busy period. Um, how will this look, do you think? So that's a great question. Um, in the fourth quarter, it, it, it's uh, almost always the busiest buying season. About a third of the spending uh, takes place in the fourth quarter alone. Um, and then September uh, is, is even higher propensity for the government agencies to purchase. Um, based off our forecast before the pandemic occurred, uh, Bloomberg government was anticipating uh, a forecast of about $630 billion uh, that would come once final uh, obligations were recorded. Uh, the big curveball is is how the stimulus funding is going to impact agency operations. Um, and that's uh, a, a tough number to calculate uh, based off what we have seen in some of the uh, legislative packages. Um, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of about $50 billion, but not all of that will have to be used uh, by September. Um, so the big question mark is, is how much in addition to appropriated funds will take place by September 30th. And then Dan, I also wanna make sure to ask, is there guidance that, that you all are tracking that maybe contractors are looking for that hasn't come out yet? Um, so some of the, the, the comparisons in the, in the House bill for the relief packages uh, is really a, a, a tale of two different stories. Um, so the, the Senate version uh, or uh, the HEALS Act uh, provided a huge boost to many of the defense contractors. That provided about $30 billion uh, in funding that would be distributed to the defense base. Comparatively, um, the House bill or the HEROES Act uh, provided almost nothing. Um, so uh, it's really a divergence between the two, uh, and we're continuing to monitor those to see what uh, eventually is released and enacted into law. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you. Up next, creating new ways for the U.S. to get arms payments during the coronavirus. Straight ahead on Government Matters, adding increased flexibilities in order to keep weapon sales on track. Don't forget, if you missed an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. customers could have new ways to pay for U.S. weapons. The U.S. will work to accommodate coronavirus-related economic concerns by adjusting payment schedules and providing alternative options. Aaron Mehta is Deputy Editor and Senior Pentagon Correspondent for Defense News. Thanks for being here, Aaron. What can you tell us about um, the new options for payment here? Yeah, so I talked with uh, Lieutenant General Charles Hooper, who is, uh, as of a couple days ago, now no longer the head of the Defense Security Cooperation Agency. He'd been there for about three years, uh, just retired. And what he said is, look, we know that uh, customers are going to have trouble, customer nations across the world are going to have trouble continuing to buy the way they had planned to even just a couple months ago as a result of the economic downturn 
uh, caused by COVID-19. The goal, he said, is to make sure that these customers can still buy the things they'd already planned to buy and effectively say, look, we're willing to work with you and figure out the financial flexibility that you need to be able to continue to be an American arms customer. And, you know, what's the relevance of this? Are, are you hearing concerns from uh, defense contractors that maybe some of these deals are going to fall through and that might make it harder for them? Yeah, so far, I think most of the uh, the companies that we've talked to and, and heard from earnings calls are saying, you know, everything looks okay right now, but there's a lot of concern about future sales. And you have to remember, with, with big arm sales, these are not one-time deals that get done and then kind of move along. These are things that have a long tail. In some cases, that tail is maintenance and support. Uh, which companies very much rely on for their financial benefits from that. In some cases, it's just it's going to take 10 years to deliver these batch of planes or helicopters or tanks to the customer. So companies certainly don't want to see them putting in the money up front to start production, to start training people, and then halfway through the contract, the partner country come back and say, hey, sorry, I know we said we buy 50 of these things. We're only going to be able to buy 20 of them. Figure out what to do with the long lead items and the cost you've already invested, and, and good luck with that. And, and it sounds like General Hooper gave you an idea that, that maybe some countries are already um, contacting his agency about this? Yeah, he wouldn't say who, uh, but you know, he acknowledged countries specifically that are energy dependent, uh, which we can take to be the Middle East as well as other countries in the world, are going to be the ones that are most easily identifiable as affected. The energy prices have dropped. A lot of these countries have big, big spending plans. Uh, and, you know, chances are those are going to change. The other aspect that he said to look for is uh, countries that are going to be taking some of their defense money and putting it back into social programs. We've seen a lot of countries over the last couple of months invest heavily in, you know, keeping people at work, investing into small businesses, things like that. That money is going to come from somewhere, and the easiest place is probably the defense budget. We've seen that particularly in the Pacific. Countries like Indonesia and South Korea have already said we're going to be cutting our defense budgets going forward to be able to put that money back into internal issues in our country. And, and what are the kinds of options that General Hooper said um, DSA may be able to offer to customers? Yeah, the, the watchword there is flexibility. Uh, Hooper stressed, we want countries to come to us and say, hey, look, this is kind of what we're dealing with. How can you help us? And then DSA wants to be able to take that and work with state and, and figure out options. You know, he said one thing uh, that's very much on the table is essentially stretching payment. You were supposed to, your country, and you're supposed to pay the U.S. over two years for your equipment. Maybe that's now three or four years instead. Another option, he said, is some of the deposits that countries have given ahead of time to the U.S. Maybe those deposits go back early to them, and they can have that money back. The most interesting thing that he kind of brought up is the idea of allowing countries for the first time to accept uh, loans from foreign banks that operate in the U.S., I said the U.S. is totally protected through our system in that case, but it's something they've been kicking around for a while, and now they want to start offering to countries as, again, incentive and a way to help them continue to buy American-made arms. Obviously, defense contractors, you know, would rather, um, you know, see the, the payment schedule stretched than a deal canceled, but is, do you expect it to have any impact on them if these deals, um, you know, maybe they buy a slightly fewer number over a longer period or, or something like that? Would that have an impact, you think, on companies? Yeah, I think absolutely. Uh, you know, over the last, I don't know, let's say two decades, uh, the American defense industry has really started to invest heavily in the idea of we need foreign arms sales. It's baked into a lot of programs, the idea of, okay, well, we'll get, you know, 300 planes from the U.S. Air Force, but then we'll have perhaps a thousand that we can sell abroad to countries across the globe. If those countries aren't buying arms in the way that we had, uh, the, the industry had predicted over the last decade, 
that's absolutely going to impact bottom line. It's going to impact uh, willingness of some country, some companies to uh, invest in new technologies, perhaps. Uh, it's going to impact uh, American programs, you know, that maybe, again, we're counting on having international sales to help lower the cost. All of a sudden, those costs for the American taxpayer might start creeping up as well. It's something with a lot of cascading effects, and it's something that we haven't actually dealt with in the recent history because the market has expanded so much internationally that the thought was it's just going to keep expanding to a certain point, and this will just kind of keep the money train going. I think we're going to see in the next couple of years what happens when defense budgets across the globe stretch. And, and it's just about a minute to go. Aaron, what are you going to be watching going forward? How will you be able to sort of track whether, um, you know, this, this isn't going to work out as well as it maybe it has in the past? Yeah, I mean, we're going to see over the next, let's say, six to nine months, uh, we'll start to actually see the impact on American companies from COVID and the American defense industry in things like earning calls, statements, things like that. Up until now, it's largely been, well, we have to wait and see. Uh, that will start to actually hit. Um, I think look for things also in terms of partnerships with foreign countries. A lot of countries have started in the last two or three years really investing in their domestic defense industries. Uh, it's going to be very interesting to see how that affects the American industry in a situation like we're talking about, because you know, if this is a jobs program for Turkey or South Korea or Japan to develop their own fighter, well, now it's doubly important that they have these jobs in their countries. American companies had looked to partner with some of those domestic companies as well. Maybe those partnerships fall apart because the countries want to hold everything in-house. There's just a lot of moving parts. It's in many ways an unprecedented situation for the American defense industry. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens. Thank you so much, Aaron. Thank you. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is now available as an audio podcast. You can subscribe to our daily program on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Or ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join us weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Marjorie Sensor. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.